peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of Sai. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. Oh, thank God. I'm back in the safety of my own home. I've spent the last two weeks a captive of a psycho named Grimsby. He made me read a scary story before he'd release me from his chamber of horror. He recorded the story I read, and is releasing it on his podcast, Chambers of Horror. I have the honor of being featured in the premiere of season two. So, yeah, apparently he has done this quite a bit because there's an entire first season of Chambers of Horror, featuring his prisoners reading stories. So, if you're interested, you can check out season one now and be on the lookout for the season two premiere featuring yours truly... (laughs) coming Monday, July 27th. Then on Tuesday, the 28th, you'll also have a new October by May episode to enjoy. That episode will return us to a Halloween-centric story. But before we return to our autumnal roots, today's episode will take you in another direction. In fact, we're not just going to be thematically far from All Hallows' Eve, we'll be physically far as well. Both of today's stories take place on other planets. In the first, we'll join Jimmy Dixon as he tries to cope with life on a new planet. And part of adjusting to that life is getting used to the constant death that surrounds him. Misconceptions We have learned that nothing is simple and rational except what we ourselves have invented. Aldous Huxley, Views of Holland Jimmy Dixon hefted his duffel bag over his shoulder and trudged towards the dome structure located at the far end of the landing zone. He could feel the heat from the shuttle engines as the craft lifted, pivoted, and accelerated in the direction of the space station. Looks like the southwestern United States, Jimmy mused as he surveyed his surroundings. Welcome to Considine Mining Station Number 7, a man called from the top of the domed mining complex. Name's Jake Slocum. Mine's Jimmy Dixon, Jimmy responded affably. Need any help? Thanks anyway. I'm just about done. Be down in a few minutes. Jimmy nodded and entered the control room to find a man busily checking the various graphics being displayed on a host of monitors. That's the last of the vents, Bill. Jimmy heard the voice of Jake Slocum announce from a speaker situated over the main control panel. A camera tracked his progress as he moved around spider-like over the outside of the dome. Right. They all show closed. We're buttoned up. Come on down. The man monitoring the equipment responded. You guys look pretty busy. Anything I can do to help? Jimmy asked. We've got it, thanks. The man replied without turning. My name's Jimmy Dixon. Just got off the supply shuttle. Bill Masters. The man returned curtly. Don't forget to cover up that camera lens before you come down. He advised Jake. Right. Jake called back. Not sure what to do next, 
Jimmy simply dropped his duffel and sat in a chair near the entrance. You guys look like you're getting ready for a hurricane or something, Jimmy noted, hoping to engage Masters in a conversation lasting more than a few syllables. Bill Masters turned and looked at Jimmy for the first time, with an expression somewhere between irritation and disgust. Yeah, something like that, he said, before turning back to the bank of monitors and calling up another graphic. Although Jimmy was still somewhat new to the mining industry, he nevertheless recognized some of the graphics being displayed. Most of the plant operating systems were apparently being shut down in a controlled fashion. You guys shutting down? He asked incredulously. That's right, for the next three weeks, Bill acknowledged. But not to worry, you'll be paid for it. So I get paid for the next three weeks and for my three weeks of vacation? Jimmy asked. Listen, kid, the next three weeks is your vacation, Bill informed him none too delicately. But I was told I'd get three weeks paid vacation. I thought that meant, you know, off planet. That's what you get for thinking. You're telling me those guys that hired me lied? Yeah, well, it happens all the time. Live with it. Jimmy, red-faced and fuming, wouldn't let the matter die. But why would they leave us here doing nothing for three weeks? I mean, as long as we're not working, why does the company care whether we're here or on some other planet? Bill rubbed his thumb and index finger together. Money, kid, money. Shuttle tickets cost an arm and a leg, Bill informed him. But... Jimmy was cut off as the door slid open behind him, and Jake hurried in. As the door closed, Jake entered a code into the control pad on the wall, engaging the door lock. Come on, kid, grab your stuff, Bill ordered. We'll show you the living quarters. Still numb from the shock of learning his vacation plans were now in ruins, Jimmy obeyed without question. The men walked through a short, arched corridor and into a spacious room replete with devices designed to combat boredom. Four corridors branched off from the room, and Bill motioned towards one of them. That's your room, down the hallway, he declared to Jimmy. Jimmy walked through the short corridor and into his room. He deposited his duffel on top of the bed and then returned to the game room to find Bill and Jake engaged at the pool table. So upset was Jimmy over his tattered vacation, he'd forgotten about the operational shutdown. By the way, why are we shutting down? He asked. Is there a storm on the way? Bill and Jake looked at Jimmy, and then at each other. Bill turned back to the table and lined up a shot. Unlike anything you've ever seen, Jake assured him in an ominous tone. And it lasts for three weeks? Jimmy asked innocently. Give or take a day or two, Jake said offhandedly. Just then, a subtle thump came from the opaque dome arching high above them. Jimmy's head followed the sound while Bill and Jake continued the game. Starting already? We cut it awfully fine, didn't we? Jake asked in a tone bordering on accusation. I thought you said they were still an hour away. Two more thumps in quick succession punctuated his comments. Lead element must have flown in under the radar, Bill muttered as he lined up a shot. Jimmy knew the conversation between the two men was somehow related to the thumps coming from above, but the exact nature of the relationship escaped him. It was as though they were speaking of individual raindrops instead of the storm as a whole. It sounds like some heavy-duty rain, Jimmy finally said, as half a dozen wumps echoed through the game room. Glad we got inside when we did. It's not rain, Jake informed him. Jimmy cocked his head and listened carefully to the intermittent impacts from above. 
What do you mean? Jimmy said innocently. I can hear them. The thuds continued to increase in quantity and regularity. You heard it from him, kid. It ain't rain. Bill responded gruffly. What? You mean that's hail? Jimmy raised his voice somewhat so he could be heard above the rising din. Didn't they tell you anything about this planet? Jake asked. Jimmy shook his head. The noise had completely lost its desultory nature. It was uninterrupted and seemed to extend over the entire structure. They're locusts, Bill mentioned as he sank the eight ball. Jimmy's mouth dropped. That's what we call them anyway, Bill added. They're bugs of some kind. I'm no bug scientist, so I couldn't tell you exactly what they are. Hey Jake, what's a bug scientist called? Jake pondered the question for a moment. Entomologist, I think? Jake finally responded. Yeah, if you really want to know what they are, ask an entomologist. Once a year, just like clockwork. They hatch somewhere on the planet and then migrate somewhere else, and we just happen to be in between the two places, Jake affirmed. At least that's how we have it figured. Jimmy cringed at the sound of the bodies impacting on the unyielding dome. But why don't they just fly around us? How should I know? Bill grumbled. Like I said, I'm no bug expert. I suppose they've been flying this route for so long it's now encoded in their genetic structure or something like that. Jake hazarded a guess. I think it's because they can't see us, Bill added. The color of the dome is shaded just like the surroundings. Why don't we paint it some other color? Jimmy wondered out loud. Bill paused from chalking his cue long enough to rub his thumb and index finger together. Money, kid, money. Paint ain't free, and this is a mighty big dome. Still, it seems... Jimmy's thoughts trailed off as the racket above him nearly overwhelmed his words. Seems what? A waste? You feeling sorry for them? Jake poked his chin in the air. They're just bugs, Bill offered as he racked the balls. Yeah, it's still life, Jimmy muttered. Jake and Bill exchanged glances. Look, why don't you call it a day, Jake suggested. Jimmy's face bore a dubious expression. He was unconvinced anyone could sleep through such a din. You get used to it after a while, Bill assured him. It's almost like, hey Jake, what's that noise some people go to sleep with? White noise. Yeah, it's almost like white noise, Bill said sagely. Jimmy nodded once, entered his room and closed the door. After splashing some water on his face, he undressed and climbed into bed. Jimmy had always enjoyed listening to the sound of rain on his rooftop, especially when snuggled deep in the comforting folds of blankets. But Jimmy gained no comfort from the pattering in the present tense. He eventually dozed off, but his sleep was inconstant and laced with nightmares. He dreamed the dome had somehow been punctured. The three men had no ladder tall enough to reach the hold and could only mill about in bare feet over the prickly carpet composed of the body parts of insects, watching helplessly as the entire facility became inundated an inch at a time. Jimmy awoke the next morning, crawled out of bed, and splashed more water on his face. He found Jake seated in front of a large plate of scrambled eggs and toast. Bill was practicing at the dartboard. Hey kid, you don't look too good, Bill observed, obviously enjoying Jimmy's discomfort. I'll have some breakfast, Jake mumbled through some burnt toast. It'll make you feel better. Jimmy sat down and watched, blurry-eyed, 
as Jake ladled some scrambled eggs onto a plate, added a few pieces of bacon and some toast coated with apple jelly, then shoved the concoction across the table at Jimmy as though he were a pharmacist filling a prescription. Just what the doctor ordered, Jake said before returning to his own plate. This is what he really needs, Bill noted as he planted a steaming cup of coffee in front of Jimmy with just a bit too much enthusiasm, the black liquid sloshing over the sides. Jimmy nodded his thanks at both of them and sipped the coffee. He blanched as it burnt his mouth, then proceeded to pick at the food. He sprinkled salt on his eggs. He was momentarily thankful for the sound of the splattering insects as it drowned out the noise of Bill slurping coffee and Jake chewing his food. I imagine there's going to be quite a mess when it's all over, Jimmy observed with an uneasy expression. Jake gulped his coffee before responding. You'd be surprised. The scavengers around here do a pretty good job of cleaning up. Things that fly, things that crawl, things that hop. They're all out there right now, every last one of them, getting their fair share. The dome will be discolored, but the sun will bleach it quick enough. In about a month, there won't be any sign. Jimmy absentmindedly added more salt to his eggs. That's right, kid, Bill said as he tossed a dart. No cleanup duty for us. Jimmy continued to mechanically pick at his food until it became obvious, even to him, he would eat no more. He cleaned his plate, along with those of Jake and Bill, then selected a book and began reading. But the rooftop clatter made it impossible for him to concentrate. He envied Bill and Jake, both of them apparently oblivious to the noise that so unnerved him. He watched as they facilely moved from one form of entertainment to another, laughing and joking all the while. Later in the morning, Bill introduced Jimmy to a fascinating little device. Labeled the Cinesub, it was designed to substitute the image of an individual for that of any character in any movie. The movie, projected in three dimensions, was incredibly lifelike. Jimmy made a half-hearted attempt at replacing John Wayne in an old western, but ended up simply watching movies the rest of the day with the volume turned up. After dinner, Jimmy rummaged through every drawer in the facility, eventually finding a pair of earplugs. Exhausted from lack of sleep and the stress caused by the unending barrage of insects, he turned in early, declining an offer from Jake and Bill to join them in the gym for a brisk workout. Jimmy quickly fell asleep, but was again plagued by nightmares, featuring insects sporting a vast array of pincers, mandibles, and stingers. He woke a few hours later and removed the earplugs. He found they were not only ineffectual in completely blotting out the insidious noise, they were also proving to be an uncomfortable nuisance as well. Jimmy dozed on and off until morning. He dragged himself out of bed and straggled into the kitchen, where he found his two co-workers consuming waffles and link sausages in prodigious quantities. Why don't they soundproof this place? Jimmy asked irritably. Bill paused for the space of time it took to rub his thumb and index finger. Money, kid, money. As Bill immediately looked back at his plate, Jimmy's glare was wasted. You need to eat more. You eat more, you get drowsy, you sleep better, Jake advised. I can't eat while with this going on, Jimmy stated as he thrust a thumb in the direction of the dome. Just the thought of it makes my stomach queasy. You better toughen up, kid, Bill said, a bit of waffle escaping from the corner of his mouth. You got about 18 days left. You ain't got a whole lot of meat on you as it is. You don't eat for 18 days and you'll be as thin as a coat of paint. Jimmy did his best to ignore the comment as he poured himself a cup of coffee. 
particularly large specimen impacted the dome, causing Jimmy to flinch and dribble hot coffee on his hand. Damn! He howled. Still feeling sorry for them? Bill wanted to know. Jimmy locked eyes with him. Would it bother you if a fire destroyed one of the national forests back on Earth? Jimmy asked. Although he was staring at Bill, it was Jake who responded. Sure, I guess. Why? They're just a bunch of trees? Jimmy shot back. Yeah, but... Well, they're pretty. They give us shade and oxygen. They, uh, uh... They provide homes to all kinds of animals. Jake drawled, trying to think of reasons as he went along. They're living things, right? Jimmy asked. Sure, Jake readily admitted. Why are you two so unaffected by the slaughter going on all around us? They're living things, just like trees. A life is being extinguished every time we hear one of those thuds. Can't you understand that? Bill dabbed each corner of his mouth with a napkin and reached for a toothpick. Look, kid, tell me what you think I can do to stop it, and I'll give it a try, Bill declared. Jimmy opened his mouth but said nothing. If I could snap my fingers and make the bugs fly around us, I would, Bill continued in an unemotional tone. But I can't, okay? I can't do anything about this, and neither can you. You've got to learn to roll with the punches. Jimmy sat at the table and considered the advice. Are you sure it's the dying bugs that's got you on edge? Or is it just the fact that you're not used to all that noise and it's ruining your sleep? Making you cranky? Bill inquired as he rose from the table and sauntered over to the Cinesub machine. Jimmy watched as Bill deftly typed in some codes on a keypad at the Cinesub and began playing his part. Bill had taken the place of Humphrey Bogart in Key Largo. Jimmy watched as Edward G. Robinson slapped Bill across the face for having the temerity to give Claire Trevor a drink. You'll pay for that, Bill vowed, ignoring the script and creating his own lines. I'll end up with the dame. Jimmy finished his coffee and poured himself another cup of the sludgy black liquid. He forced himself to play solitaire and billiards, and a hundred other things he didn't really want to do and had an absolutely miserable time doing them. He watched as Jake and Bill managed to while away the time in an effortless fashion, finding one amusing activity after another. Lunch came, then dinner, and all the while, no matter how he tried to take his mind off the noise, Jimmy's brain registered the endless smacking and cracking of bodies all around him. After the dinner dishes had been cleared away, while Jake and Bill were enjoying a smoke, Jimmy leaned across the table. I'm gonna need something to help me sleep, he said to no one in particular. Bill and Jake eyed one another through the haze. No can do, Jake finally responded. But, Jimmy began. You know the rules, kid, Bill scolded. You read the contract before you signed. No drugs, no alcohol, that's the way it is. Come on, Jimmy said with a cocksure attitude. You guys aren't going to pull that on me, are you? What the hell's that supposed to mean? Bill demanded as he viciously ground out his cigarette butt. Are you telling me that you don't have a little something around here, you know, to get you going in the morning and then maybe a different flavor to smooth you out at night? Jimmy asked. Forget it, kid. Bill said as he pushed back his chair and rose from the table. It's not like we're driven snow, Jake explained. It's just that, well, you know what the searches are like. You've been through them. There's just no way to hide this stuff. Jimmy placed both hands on his head as if to keep it from exploding. 
Why don't they move this place underground? Jimmy muttered testily. Bill responded with the, by now, familiar gesture of thumb and index finger being rubbed together. Money, kid. Money. My name's not Kid, damn it! Jimmy screeched, his face turning purple with rage. Bill and Jimmy, separated by only a few inches, glared at one another. Bill stood his ground, rock solid, betraying no sign of emotion. Jimmy's body twitched from the effects of an adrenaline surge, while his jaws worked spasmodically. Jake finally stepped between the men. He escorted Bill to a corner, where the two men consulted one another for some time before returning. Listen, kid, Jake and me, we decided to come clean. This is all just a gag, okay? We pull the same one on all the new guys. We like to see how long they can take it before they break. It really is just a rainstorm. Jimmy looked from one to the other, his eyes finally resting on Bill. Look, Bill began. We're sorry about... If that's true, you won't mind if I open the door and have a look for myself, Jimmy suggested. Bill shook his head vigorously. No can do. Why not? Jimmy demanded. We'll flood the place. The water's already at least a foot high. Jimmy thought for a moment. Why cover the camera lens if it's just rain? We get some mighty big hailstones, too, Bill assured him. Before Jimmy could protest any further, a noise of a very unique nature made itself heard above the general clamor. Vamil concentrated on his destination, the fifth stress point. From his birth, one year in the past, Vamil had been assigned to the fifth stress point, the necessary preparations intense. His rhythm of sleeping and waking had been gradually modified until he was alternating every five cycles. His pattern of nutritional intake changed in accordance with his assignment as well. Vamil now consumed five nodules of grain five times per cycle, reproduction limited to five offspring all done to keep Vamil to the fifth stress point, just as his fellow warriors had been keyed to their particular stress points. The wise ones, using extensive mathematical calculations passed along genetically, had determined the existence of 12 stress points. The wise ones had then identified each of the stress points with a distinctive pheromone. The wise ones, utilizing nothing more than their wondrous brains in order to perform the calculation, had then discovered the force a single warrior would impart to a stress point. The wise ones, patiently, doggedly, continued their search for answers, and soon found the number of such incremental forces required before a stress point would exhibit structural failure. Once this number was known, warriors were allotted accordingly. Constrained by reproduction cycles, the attack would not be continuous. It would consist of billions of warriors, meted out once a year over the course of 13 years, Vamil's hive was patient. As the sun began its daily cycle, the wise ones had emitted a pheromone, informing the hive the time had arrived when the calculations would be fulfilled. By fortunate coincidence, Vamil was to be final warrior at the fifth stress point. Vamil's effort, along with the impacts generated by eleven companions, would be sufficient to collapse the alien egg before it could hatch. Another group of warriors, specifically selected for the size of their stingers and the toxicity of their venom, had been assigned to destroy the larva within. (laughs) 
Jimmy may have had a completely different reaction to the deaths of the alien locusts than Bill and Jake, but all three had something in common. They all misunderstood and underestimated Vamil and his brethren. It's hard to really understand what drives someone else, especially when you don't share the same foundational knowledge or cultural context. Yate and Dalid, two extraterrestrial figureheads of the Office of Intergalactic Welfare, are going to help us see what it's like when an external interpretive eye is tasked with making sense of our own behavior. Are our societies so easy to objectively comprehend? Or will the observation of our earthly practices result in a unique form of condemnation? The Reprieve Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. Shakespeare, Macbeth. Yate, chief of operations for intergalactic welfare, sensed the summons of his superior, his superior being none other than Dalid, the supreme director of the Office of Intergalactic Welfare. What does he want now? Yate pondered. After managing to coordinate his immense bulk, Yate quivered reluctantly through the door. Probably another drought on Legier's planet, Yate speculated sourly. Why they allow colonists on the planet is beyond me. Every five years, like clockwork, the planet has a drought. Do they learn from it? Do they fill the reservoirs in the rainy season? I suppose it's easier to simply depend on the Office of Intergalactic Welfare. Yate continued to mutter as he moved slowly down the short hallway to Dalid's office. When Yate eventually arrived at his destination, he sensed his superior's invitation to enter. So good to see you, Yate. Please, make yourself comfortable. Thank you. I'm relaxed. Yes, I will. Uh, at ease. I have done so, Yate said, perhaps a bit too forcefully, considering he was addressing the Supreme Director. So you have. So you have. <laughs> Dalid rumbled good-naturedly. Very well, then. Let us proceed. I have a very special task for you. This task involves nothing less than the continued existence of an alien race. Do you understand? Yes. Comprehend? Quite. Perceive? Absolutely. Yate said tersely. Very well. It seems an asteroid diverted from its previous course after interacting with a comet is now on a collision course with a planet in the galaxy located in the nether region of the universe. Dalid paused. When no comment was forthcoming from Yate, he continued. Now, simply because this planet is in an out-of-the-way corner of the universe, why, it's, it's no excuse to, uh, simply, uh... Abandon it? Yate ventured. Quite. I couldn't agree more. Very well. After all, it's our job, is it not? Intergalactic welfare says so on the door. Dalid noted proudly. Now, with the resources at our disposal, and at the time available before the asteroid impacts, we have the ability to relocate 200,000 of these aliens to a habitable planet so they may rebuild their civilization. Listen carefully, Yate, because I'm coming to a key point. I'm listening closely, Supreme Director. Yate assured his superior. The aliens you evacuate must be uh, the, 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 um, the flower of their civilization. Of course. The cream of the crop. Naturally. The best of the best. Certainly. 
Yate did his best to stifle a gesture of boredom, and failed. Dalit was quick to note the gesture. Be advised that this is an important mission, Yate. Dalit sputtered indignantly. This is not just another... another drought on Nagir's planet. Uh, I realize that. A flood on Jatel's planet. Obviously. A blight on Hazik's planet. Say no more. Dalit seemed mollified by Yate's responses. Very well. I expect your undivided attention. Dalit warned. You have it, Supreme Director. Yate said sincerely. Well, almost sincerely. Now, back to the selection of the 200,000 aliens, and the method you will use to select them. As you know from your travels throughout the universe, the beliefs, the values of one race may vary drastically in relation to another. One alien race may consider a particular act to be moral and ethical, while another alien race may consider the same act to be immoral and unethical. Because of this disparity in value systems, you will not make your selections based on our concepts of right and wrong. To further complicate matters, you will not have enough time to study the alien culture and analyze its ethical components. You are hereby allotted only two of the local time units, known as weeks. Your evaluations concerning who will be evacuated must be based on a series of... Observations. I'm good at observing. Sensations. I excel at sensing. Impressions. I'm at my best when... observing. From these observations, you will glean enough information to enable you to decide who the alien race considers to be its best representatives. They will essentially let you know by their actions who they cherish above all others of their species. Do you understand? It must be the aliens, not you, who will make the determination. I understand, Supreme Director. Very well. After you know who those beloved individuals are, then you may rescue them. Needless to say, you will limit your contact with the aliens to a minimum. Yate said nothing, but made a gesture of assent. Oh, um, one more thing, Dalit said with some reluctance. I am listening, Supreme Director. In order to mix with the aliens and still remain undetected, I'm afraid it will be necessary for you to undergo certain... alterations. Oh no. Modifications? Please. Remodeling. Not again, Supreme Director. Of course, after your mission, you may revert to your natural state once again. Dalid reminded his subordinate. Yate bowed his head in resignation. Perhaps it won't take as long this time to... Realign my body mass. Yate muttered hopefully. Good luck, Yate. I'm sure you will be successful. Dalit said in parting. Yate wasted no time in obtaining a scout ship and sojourning to the doomed planet. He visited the wealthiest cities and the lowliest mud huts in his effort to discover the class of beings the aliens deemed worthy of redemption. He observed the aliens, young and old, male and female, as they worked and played. After making his decision... Yate returned to Dalid. Yate, it's good to see you again. How goes the drought on Legir's planet? Pardon me for reminding you, Supreme Director, but my mission was not on Legir's planet, but rather to the nether region of the universe. Yes, of course. In a little-known galaxy. Now, I recall. On a planet in an out-of-the-way corner of that galaxy. Ah, yes, yes, the asteroid. Please, issue your report. I found this to be one of my most challenging missions, Supreme Director. 
Yate admitted. When I arrived, I found that the aliens did not have one homogenous culture, but rather a multitude of cultures spread across the planet. Of course, I could have picked one at random and selected the alien seed stock from it, but I felt such an act would be unfair to the rest of the inhabitants. I wanted to include the entire planet in my evaluation. Well done, Dalad said approvingly. Therefore, as time permitted, I traveled to as many different cultures as I was able. I sought to find a common linkage between the different cultures. Initially, I thought the linkage might be sporting events. In many areas of the planet, the participants of these sporting events are treated with the respect usually accorded a supreme director. Dalad gestured disapproval. What a bizarre culture, he sniffed. Please continue, Yate. However, in some parts of the planet, particularly those parts geographically isolated and subject to a harsh environment, sporting events are either unknown or do not enjoy the prominence given their brethren in other areas of the globe. Interesting. It then seemed natural to consider the leaders of the different cultures as possible candidates for evacuation. After all, if the aliens did not think their leaders were the best examples of their race, why would they let them remain their leaders? Good thinking. Unfortunately, that idea, too, was off the mark. How so? I witnessed some leaders maintaining their office by force of arms. Other leaders were placed in office with only a very narrow margin of approval, meaning almost as many people did not like them as did like them. Quite often, leaders did not attain their position because they were well-liked, but because no one else wanted the job. The problem sounds almost insoluble. I was beginning to despair. Yate said candidly. It was then I recognized the common linkage. I began noticing everywhere I went, no matter the geography, no matter the culture, the aliens employed the practice of maintaining private possessions. Dalit gestured surprise. Furthermore, it was customary for the aliens to assign a different value to each possession. Dalit gestured astonishment. If the value given to a possession was trifling, then the possessor would use the possession regularly. As the value of a possession grew, the incidence of use was proportionately less. The most valuable possessions were rarely used at all. Why did they have these possessions if they did not use them? Dalit wondered aloud. I'm afraid I do not know, Yate admitted. However, and here is the crux of the matter, Supreme Director. The most valuable possessions were guarded very carefully. The different cultures on the planet did not always apply the same value to a possession. One culture might consider a work of art to be extremely valuable, while another culture might look upon the same possession as useless. But if an alien considered something to be very valuable, then the possession was watched over very closely. Once I progressed this far in my thinking... Wait. I believe I have grasped the sequence of logic you utilized. After uncovering the common denominator among the aliens, you use the information to extrapolate from possessions to... And yes, you then made certain inferences concerning the aliens themselves. Oh, Yata, you are so very clever. Thank you. Intelligent. You are too kind. Perspicacious. I'm overwhelmed. Come to think of it, that's probably why I made you chief of operations. Yate gestured embarrassment. I've given our transport ships the coordinates where they may find the aliens to be evacuated, Supreme Director. They have all the necessary information. Excellent, Yate. Well done. Permit me to show you some of the images, Supreme Director. Yate said, as he initiated a viewing screen in front of Dalad. These images are the locations where I found the flower of the alien race. Observe. 
The viewing screen displayed a number of buildings ringed by fences. In front of the buildings were signs signifying the nature of the institutions. Although neither Dalid nor Yate could read the words on the signs, they both realized, because the buildings were closely guarded, the aliens inside of them were extremely valuable. The following are some examples of the words printed on the signs. Hospital for the Criminally Insane Federal Correctional Facility State Penitentiary U.S. Military Stockade Her Majesty's Prison Military Prison Before we go, I wanted to thank Paul Crane for providing the voice of Dalid. It was a last-minute request, and he really turned it out. Also, interestingly enough, as I record this, it is the five-year anniversary of our last performance together in the international tour of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. We closed that show in Macau in 2015. I played Cogsworth, the uptight clock, and Paul was Maurice, Belle's eccentric father. I didn't even realize just how timely his guest appearance was. Anyways, a big thank you to Paul. Also, remember to check out Chambers of Horror, both their first season, currently available, and the season two premiere, coming July 27th. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Misconceptions by Edward T. May The Reprieve by Edward T. May Recitation and audio design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi